0: Would you please turn with me to Colossians today we're just going to do uh, a bit of an overview so we're going to be looking at some scripture in Colossians and a lot of other scriptures outside of Colossians but I want to kind of frame where we're going in the coming months and it's always good to uh, to just start with a little bit of uh, background and the theme and all the the circumstances surrounding any letter that we we work our way through my pastor in Tennessee years ago he was telling us about how when he when he first met his wife obviously not his wife at that time in fact she wasn't even a believer she wasn't even a Christian but they they became friends and they started hanging out and she told him she said you know you're kind of a fanatic for Jesus kind of fanatical and he said well first off you're the one that's always bringing it up but secondly that's actually kind of a compliment for for any Christian to be told that you're a fanatic for Jesus. And I uh, never forgot that. I thought that, that is good, that is true. I would love for it to be said of me that I'm all about Jesus, that I'm crazy for Jesus, right? On fire for him. I remember a few years later in my own life, uh, someone who was very close to me in my family, I was uh, pestering them about Jesus quite a bit, looking back on it now. And, uh, you know, it was the funniest thing. He said to me, you know, I just don't think God wants us to talk about him that much. <laughs> and that was one of the best excuses I've ever heard. Uh, what he was really saying is, I just don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to talk about it anymore. And what that also communicated, I think, to me was, man, just the, the amount of which I was talking about Jesus to this particular person and... Uh, you know, it's, uh, I hate to say it, but I'm probably not as obnoxious for Jesus anymore. I kind of wish I was. I wish I was obnoxious for Jesus, right? I think that we can all remember a time in our Christian lives when we were in that place, when we were just so in love with Jesus, that Jesus was the, the center of it all. And it's easy for the cares of this life, for uh, hurts, fears, frustrations, failures, and a million other things to to steal us away from our first love. And it's easy to forget what it even means to be Christ-centered, to have a Christ-saturated life. And it means to be captivated by the glory of Christ, to behold His beauty And what does that mean? It means to to look upon Christ, to consider who He is, to consider what He has done, what He is doing, and to be swept away in the glory of that, to be so in love with Jesus because of who He is and because of what He has done. It is to want to live for Him, to live for Him in every way. It is to pursue Christ to count him as more important than anything else in this life. And brothers and sisters, I think we could all agree that's a hard place to stay because there are so many other things that we count as important. And though we might not say they're more important to Jesus, I think our actions might suggest otherwise. And I think that our hearts, our hearts are always, you know, there's competing loyalties. And so I think of the Apostle Paul. When he said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul said there is nothing more important to me than Christ. Everything else is quite frankly like garbage in comparison to the surpassing worth of having christ knowing him and being found in him that's a great place to be for a christian when you know when you're in that place where you could say freely without reservation that that's how important jesus is to you you know psalm the language of psalm 73 verse 25 carries the same sentiment it says who have i in heaven but you And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside you. That is to say that, God, you are above all things, and there's nothing that I could hold up beside you or next to you that would compare, something that would rival your surpassing worth. There's nothing that could be put on the same level with Christ, as it were. He is above all things, and he is more important, more valuable. And Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 13 says this, he says, And the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And so it's it's like this, you know, you're walking through a field, it's not your field, but as you do, you stumble across something there, there's some treasure there, and no one else knows it's there but you. So what do you do? You just kind of casually maybe cover it up with your foot. You leave, you go out, you sell everything that you have. You get rid of everything that you have so that you can get the money to go and purchase that field. And now that field is yours and everything that is in it. And Jesus says that is what the kingdom of God is like. We would we find this treasure in Christ and he's more valuable to us than anything and we would give anything away for him. He is more important. He is worth it all. You know, and I want to live like that. I want to be Christ-centered. I want to be Christ-saturated. I want to be sold out. I want to be on fire for Jesus always. I need Christ. I need Him now more than I have ever needed Him before. And, and folks, that's not some cliche. I know this. I know what would happen right now if I did not have Christ. I know where I would go, and I know how fast I would get there. Lightning fast. I know that Christ is holding me, and I praise God for that. I need Him. I need Him all the time. And I feel like God has just recently been so gracious as to remind me and refresh me in His grace, and for me to once again remember the glory of being close to Christ and how that is everything. That is more than anything else in this life. I think that any Christian wants that. Anyone who is called upon the name of Jesus, that, that hands down, they could say that is their desire. And I want our church to be that kind of church. Don't you? I want our church to be a church full of men and women, brothers and sisters, whose single purpose in life is to adore Christ and to have Christ, to go and to run to Him and to love Him and to pursue Him and to live for Him, to be all about the exaltation of Christ's person, Who he is and what he has done, his work. I pray that that would be the outcome for us as we journey through the book of Colossians. Because truly, the theme of Colossians is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. You can mark that down. That's something that you're going to be hearing a lot as we work our way through the book. And that that is the theme of the book it is the supremacy and all sufficiency of Christ. He is above all things, He is before all things. He holds all things together. And in Him, we are complete. In Him, we have all that we need. Amen? Christ is supreme. Christ is preeminent. Christ is sufficient. He is more than enough. Maybe let me simplify it a little more. Christ is more than enough. Amen? Christ is more than enough. And that's what we have in the book of Colossians. Now, the Bible describes... Humanity, the Bible describes men and women outside of Christ as poor, as broken, as empty, blind, deaf, separated from God, and yes, dead in sin. That's a bad place to be. That's pretty, that's discouraging, is it not? That's a bad place to be. But you know what? Christ radically changes all of that when we come to Him in faith when we put our trust in Christ in a saving way, and he becomes ours, and we are his, all of that changes. He radically reorients all of that, the desires of our heart, who we are in him, what we live for. You know, John chapter 6 verse 35 says this, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst, for Christ shall satisfy us completely." Psalm 107.9 says, For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Psalm 16.11, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 30 says, You are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is that for us. Christ is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our holiness. He is our redemption. 2 Corinthians twelve nine 9 says that my grace is sufficient for you. Christ's grace is more than enough. That his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, brothers and sisters, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have it all in Him. I'm gonna keep going. Hebrews 10:14 says, for by one offering He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The one offering of Christ, we have been forever perfected. Second Peter 1 3, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. We have all that we need in Christ, all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. And then Colossians 2 9 through 10, it says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. He is God. And we are complete in Him. And that means exactly what it says. We have all that we need. We are full in Him. We are complete in Him. We are sufficient in Him. I came across this little, uh, I don't know what you call it, an article or basically a compilation of all of these different phrases regarding Christ from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I thought I would share this with you. It's titled, The Glories of Christ. It starts out by saying that one of the greatest tenets of Scripture is the claim that Jesus Christ is completely sufficient for all matters of life and godliness. He is sufficient for creation, salvation, sanctification, and glorification. So pure is He that there is no blemish, stain, spot of sin, defilement, lying, deception, corruption, error, or imperfection. So complete is He that there is no other God besides Him. He is the only begotten Son. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Him. The fullness of deity dwells bodily in Him. He is the heir of all things. He created all things, and all things were made by Him, through Him, and for Him. He upholds all things by the word of His power. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the exact representation of God." He is the only mediator between God and man. He is the son that enlightens, the physician that heals, the friend that comforts, the pearl that enriches, the ark that supports, and the rock to sustain under the heaviest pressure. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty on high. He is better than the angels. He's better than Moses, better than Aaron, better than Joshua, better than Melchizedek, better than all the prophets, greater than Satan, And that is the understatement of a lifetime. He is greater than Satan and stronger than death. He has no beginning and no end. He is the spotless lamb of God. He is our peace. He is our hope. He is our life. He is the living and the true way. He is the strength of Israel. He is the root and descendant of David. He is the bright morning star. He is the faithful and true. He is the author and perfecter of faith. He is the author of our salvation. He is the champion. He is the chosen one. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is the righteous servant. He is the Lord of hosts, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth. He is the man of sorrow. He is the light. He is the son of man. He is the vine. He is the bread. He is the door. He is Lord. He is prophet, priest, and king. He is our Sabbath rest. He is our righteousness. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He is the chief shepherd. He is the Lord God of hosts. He is the Lord of nations. He is the lion of Judah. He is the living word, the rock of salvation, the eternal spirit. He is the ancient of days, creator and comforter, Messiah. He is the great I am. Now, yeah, amen. Give Jesus a clap. Come on now. now is there any question that the bible paints christ as all sufficient that there is none greater than him that he is the name above every other name no sweeter name than the name of jesus and he is more than enough for all our needs christ is more than enough to save you and me from the wrath of god god's wrath is satisfied for us in christ completely He is more than enough to reconcile us to God and make us at peace with our maker. Not only is God's wrath satisfied in Christ, but we are reconciled to God and he has made our father. Christ is more than enough for our broken lives. He is able to heal and he is able to make whole again. Christ is more than enough for that. Christ is more than enough to change us from the inside out. Christ changes our heart. Christ changes our mind. And then Christ changes our character, and he's more than enough to do that. Christ is more than enough to give us peace. Anybody need peace in here? Christ is enough to give us joy and purpose and contentment. And Christ does give us purpose. I had no purpose in my life outside of Christ. No purpose whatsoever. But now I have the greatest purpose. It is to live for Him, to love Him with all that I have, and to serve Him with all of my might. And that's your purpose too in Christ. In Christ, we have more than enough to help us in all of our relationships, whether it's as to your parents or as parents to children or to your spouse or to your employer or to your teacher, or to your students, or as a friend to friend, whatever it may be, Christ is more than enough to help you in your relationships. Christ is more than enough to provide all of our needs, to provide all that we have need of. And He is so faithful to take care of us in that way. Christ is more than enough to make you useful in His service. Useful, I I love this in Philemon, Onesimus, his name means uh, useful. And, and Philemon, is, uh, he's the, the slave, the, the master of Onesimus. And Paul is sending Onesimus back and he says, you know, he, has, he was once useless but has now become useful. It's a play on words there. And so what Paul is essentially saying of Onesimus is that useful was useless but he's now useful again. In Christ, we are made useful to the master. We are useful to serve him. We are useful for his glory. We are able. And in Christ, we have more than enough to be able to meet that task. In Christ, we have more than enough for wisdom to guide us through this life. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. And we are complete in him. And we have all the wisdom and knowledge. It is it is available to us does the bible not say that we can go to him and that he gives it liberally without reproach and that we should never doubt that we have more than enough in christ for wisdom and knowledge and in christ he is more than enough to see us to the very end for he said he would never leave us or forsake us christ will see us through this life if you have trusted christ then he is for you he is with you He is so very faithful, and He will see you to the end. Amen? In Christ, we have more than enough. He is supreme. He is preeminent. He is all-sufficient. He is more than enough. And that's the overwhelming testimony of the book of Colossians. That's the overwhelming testimony of this book. I think there's 95 verses in the book of Colossians in four chapters. And Christ is referenced 75 times in 95 verses. Now, having said all of this, we know that we are frequently tempted to think or to behave in such a way that would suggest that Christ is not enough. And you would expect that kind of influence from the world. You would expect the world to bombard you with this idea that you have all of these needs that the world can satisfy. But you know what? That kind of thing creeps into the church. It creeps into the church and it creeps into our lives. And we need to be reminded regularly of the supremacy and all sufficiency of King Jesus. Amen. And that's my prayer that as we journey through the book of Colossians, that Christ would take us deeper into that reality in our church and in our lives, that we could truly believe it and say it with all of our heart that we need Christ more than anything else in this life, and that if we have him, we have all that we need, that we would run to Christ, that we would go to him, that we would have Christ. So with that, let's kind of get into some background of the book itself. Let's look at a little bit of the background. So Colossae was a city in a Roman province, uh, Asia Minor. You may be familiar with this. It is modern-day Turkey, and it's about 100 miles east of Ephesus, and that should be very familiar to you. It's right there grouped in with the churches from the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. So down here is Jerusalem. So Paul would often launch out from here. That was kind of like the mission's headquarters for Paul. And so in his first journey, he launched out from Antioch, and he came through came through this area right here, and that was where he got stoned. It was on his first missionary journey, and he got beat nearly to death by rocks. And that was actually where Timothy was from. And Timothy was very young at that point, 13, 14 years old. And so that was kind of the end of his first missionary journey. So Paul kind of packed it up, and he came back. And so he launched out again on his second trip, and this time he made it further. And he actually made his way up through Asia here. Now, so this is Asia Minor, as you see. And so we have like the church of Smyrna, Ephesus, Laodicea, and uh, on and on we go. You'll recognize names from the book of Revelation chapter two and three. So there's some significance to this area to be sure. Well, here is Colossae. Colossae is located right there. As I said, it's not that far from Ephesus. And so that's kind of significant. You want to remember that. And so eventually Paul would make his way up here into Macedonia where we have Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, he would come down here to Greece and Corinth. And if you'll recall, this is where he wrote the book of Romans from. He wrote the book of Romans from Corinth, and that, that made its way over here. And then um, Paul finished out his missionary journey. And this time on his third missionary journey, he makes his way back down here to, uh, to Jerusalem, and then he gets arrested And then he's in Caesarea Philippi in prison for about two years. And you know the end of Acts chapter 28, uh, Paul had this uh, treacherous journey through the sea all the way over here to Malta. And then he finally made his way up into uh, Rome. And that's where the book of um, Acts actually closes. Okay, you can close the uh, map now. It ends with him in house arrest in Rome after his third missionary journey. And that is where Paul is going to write the book of Colossians from. And so at this point, he's on house arrest, if you will, if that's what you want to call it, there in Rome. And he writes a few other prison epistles, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians. So he writes all four of those letters from that particular imprisonment. Now, Colossae itself had once been a very thriving city. In the 5th century B.C., the Persian king Xerxes marched through that region. Does anybody know who that particular king is? We find him somewhere else in the Bible. He had a different name, Ahasuerus, the king in Esther chapter one. So that king five centuries earlier marched through Colossae when it was kind of at its pinnacle. And it was, uh, it was at its power. It had the, uh, the, the commerce and the wealth that it had because of nearby chalk deposits, which were important for black wools and dyes, and, um, excuse me, the city was situated at the junction of the main north-south and east-west trade routes. And so Colossae, at one point, was very wealthy, very prominent, a lot of business happening there, but by Paul's day, the main road had been rerouted through nearby Laodicea, thus bypassing Colossae and leading to its decline in the rise of its neighboring cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis. The name Laodicea, ring a bell, right? The lukewarm church in Revelation chapter 3. And so they rerouted the, uh, the the main highway there and it bypassed Colossae and went through Laodicea. So Laodicea rose to prominence and became a very wealthy place. And I, And then we know that they were known as the lukewarm church. And so... Uh, definitely uh, pretty cool. Some details there that should be very familiar to us. And so that's Colossae. That's, that's the place. That's where it's located. That's its history. And, you know, Paul had never been to Colossae at this point. Paul had not been to Colossae. He did not plant the church there. The, the timing here is about 60 to 62 A.D. So this means Christianity has been around for about 30 years at this point. Christ had ascended into heaven. The book of Acts covers about 30 years of church history. And so from this Roman imprisonment of Paul and Paul writing to Colossae, the church, the, the, the big church, universal church, had only really been in existence for 30 years. And we believe that this particular church at Colossae had probably been you know three to five years old at this point. So very much in its infancy, I would say. And there was a guy named Epaphras. We believe that he's the guy that actually planted the church in Colossae. Now, on Paul's, uh, one of his missionary journeys, I, I forgive me, it's either his second or a third one. We know that he stayed in Ephesus for like three years. So Paul was in Ephesus there, and we believe that Epaphras came from Colossae over to Ephesus, where he received the gospel from Paul and was trained. He went back to Colossae, and he planted the church there. And so within this short amount of time, all kinds of false teachings began to spring up. And so Epaphras makes his way from Colossae to Rome, where Paul is imprisoned there because he needs to seek guidance from Paul on what to do about these false teachings that were springing up in this young church of Colossae, this church that Epaphras probably started. And so he makes that long journey all the way from Colossae in Asia Minor over to Rome where Paul is imprisoned, to find out what to do. And so that kind of leads us a little more deeper into what's going on in the book of Colossians. There were a number of heresies, false teachings that had infiltrated the church. And that's really at the heart of what Paul is addressing in this letter. And so there were a number of teachings that... I've heard it said collectively made up the heresy, the the predominant false teaching that was going on in the church there. We're going to see four different ones individually, and at the root of each one of these heresies is the notion that Christ is not enough, that Christ may be a good starting point, that Christ may to one degree or another work. But there are other things that are necessary in addition to Christ. And that's, that's really what is at the heart of the heresies that we find the false teachings about Christ in the book of Colossians. And so Paul is going to address each one of these. And we're going to look at these just a little bit today. I'm not going to go in depth as much as I would like to. We'll save those for when we kind of actually start to work our way through the book. But I'll outline some of them and speak to that a little bit. But that's the issue. And so Epaphras comes to Paul, tells him about these heresies. Paul writes this letter, sends it back to the Colossian church. And actually, it would probably have come by the hands of Onesimus and Tychicus, because I told you that Onesimus was going back to Philemon with the letter to Philemon. And Onesimus was also from Colossae. So the letter of Philemon is also addressed to the church in Colossae. In fact, the church was meeting in Philemon's house. So there's some overlap there as well. And so Paul's going to hit head on these issues of false doctrine in the church that challenge the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. And the overarching response of Paul is that Christ is not only enough, he's more than enough. So let's just take a moment and let's look at a couple of these. So now you can actually uh, turn with me in Colossians to, uh, let's start with Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Worldly philosophy. That's going to be the first thing that we see. Philosophy. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So worldly philosophy, the wisdom of men, that's what the word philosophy means, the love of wisdom, the love of wisdom. And uh, we know that um, in this day and age, in this culture, the, uh, the Gentiles, the Greeks especially, they, they really boasted in wisdom. They loved wisdom. And so Paul says, you've got to watch out for this worldly wisdom that creeps into the church. And what it may have been at this particular point was an attack on um, the humanity of Christ because there were beginning, beginning forms of Gnosticism. That would come much later, but there were there were teachings that were saying that Christ could not have actually been um, a human. He could not have had, you know, a a physical body. And so, Paul seems to be pointing to something there in that phrase, for in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So, all of God's divine attributes, all of who God is, dwelled in Him bodily. So, you had the, the dual nature of Christ. He was truly man, but truly God. And so that was a problem for a lot of people in that, that culture in that time. And they would try to attack that and attach to that worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom. That to them was a very foolish idea that God could be flesh. And so Paul seems to be speaking to that very thing. And as I said, we're going to talk more about these things more in depth as we move forward together. But let me just say a couple of things about that because this is very practical and this is very relevant for us because we have a lot of that in the day and age that we live in, worldly philosophy that exalts itself as the ultimate and true wisdom and tries to make mockery of God and the Bible and of Jesus Christ and of His saints and tries to say that we need to attach all of these other outside so supposed you know, truths to the simple faith that is required of of God's people. And so in our day and age, there are a few things, worldly human wisdom that are so very prevalent, and they have made inroads into the Christian church. Unfortunately, humanism is a big one. Humanism, you know, we're at the center of it all. Everything has absolutely everything to do with me, with me, my life, my happiness, my purpose, my comfort and really they would they would they would exalt human wisdom that that basically at the heart humanity is good that we have potential beyond anything that we could truly understand and that we ultimately have the wisdom and we have the truth and that we can fix all of our problems and that we need to go in inwards instead of out you know and so This idea of humanism, and man, has that ever come into the church of Jesus Christ and done damage in the day and age that we live. It is so much about Jesus and so little, or excuse me, so often it's so much about us and so little about Jesus. You know, another one is social justice. You know, that's a real hot, hot thing right now in the world and in the church. There are a lot of lines that are being drawn in the Church of Jesus Christ. People are taking different sides on the issue of social justice, and I won't get into that at all—at least not today. But you know, it's there was a there was something um, years ago called the social gospel, and that was it was a gospel of good works. It was a gospel of generosity and benevolence and and doing charitable things, but it was really detached from the gospel itself, it was detached from the message of the cross and of sinners needing salvation in Christ. And so it was a watering down of the gospel. And in some ways, the social gospel is like a revised, updated version of that. And so uh, perhaps we'll talk more about that later. But that's just another way in which the gospel is being diluted in our day and time with the wisdom of mankind. And then, of course, theological liberalism. Uh, that that's a big one and that is you know people would say well the Bible you know it's foolish to believe that those miracles could have actually happened it's foolish to believe that that Bible is actually inspired by God and it is inerrant and it's infallible and it's authoritative it's foolish to believe that Jesus was actually born of a virgin it's foolish on and on they go so they attempt to undo all of it essentially and that's what happens uh, with with liberalism theological liberalism where you start to do away with the core fundamentals the core foundational truths of the gospel and Richard Niebuhr said this regarding this this issue of theological liberalism that made inroads into the church he said that what you have what you're left with is a God without wrath brought that brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. You know, God's not a God of wrath. There is no judgment. We're really not bad. We really aren't that sinful. Jesus did not die for the sake of God's wrath or for our sin. In fact, we just don't even want to talk about that at all. And that, that is worldly wisdom, so called, that has crept into the church and said, you know, some of these things are good. These are good life lessons. I suppose a person could be made better by believing some of these things. But we're going to just pick and choose and cherry pick and take out all the other stuff that we don't like or that we're uncomfortable with or that we in our wisdom believe could not have ever actually happened. And those kinds of things, brothers and sisters, have really come into the church strong in uh, in this last generation especially And so that's one of the things that Paul is going to deal with. That is to say that Christ is not enough. We need true wisdom. We need the wisdom of man to attach to it. The next one is mysticism. Mysticism. And this could be um, experiences, really just bizarre, weird, extraordinary experiences. It can also kind of speak to that issue of hidden knowledge you know i talked about gnosticism earlier another another form of that gnostic gnosticism is this idea that there is a secret knowledge that some people have most people don't and you can somehow attain this knowledge through certain people who have been made privy to it and then you can go to the higher level of understanding and so that stuff really crept into the church in the first couple of centuries and so Paul uh, seems to allude to that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. And so there's something here about the worship of angels. And this, this is something that was specifically going on in the church there in Colossae. And as I said, this, this kind of speaks to this, this uh, mystical experiences and visions that these people were claiming that they had. And, um, and so Paul speaks to this kind of head on. And as I said, it kind of speaks to the experience and the, the extra knowledge, if you will, and you know, quite frankly, that goes on in the church today. There are people that are always chasing experience, always chasing experiences to say Christ is not enough to feed on His faithfulness, to walk with Him, to meet with Him in the Word of God, to pray, to sing, to, to bless and to serve Him. And the common graces that God has given to His church is not enough we need some kind of extraordinary experience to be satisfied, and people are constantly chasing that. And if they don't have that, then they're not, they, they're not satisfied. They're, they're on to the next thing. And it's a never-ending hamster wheel, if, if you will, of, of always chasing experiences. And then there's this, this knowledge. There's always, you know, the Bible talks about this pursuit of knowledge, always learning, never coming to the knowledge of the truth. You know, the simple faith, the simple gospel, trusting Christ for salvation, learning God, learning of his attributes, learning of his accomplishments, learning of what God loves and what uh, what God desires for us. Those basic things, that's not enough. That's not enough. They, I know people, that are constantly reading all kinds of weird stuff outside of the Bible. They won't just read the Bible. They won't just go to the source They have to be reading all this other goofy stuff, you know, the the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Mary or all these Gnostic gospels and on and on and on it goes. There's no end to it. It's, It's infinite, all the stuff that is out there, it seems. And that's the thing that people are going after. They want experience and they want this kind of hidden knowledge that you can never seem to attain to. Christ is not enough. So Paul speaks to that very thing. Next, number three, legalism legalism. Colossians 2.16. He says, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths. And so this was an insistence on dietary laws in the days of uh, uh, high days and feasts, so on and so forth. This was also very much prevalent in the Colossian church. This insistence that we must still keep certain aspects of the, Mo, the law of Moses. And so this is Christ plus rules and rituals. This is a, absolutely a Christ plus religion. And so that is also very prevalent in the culture that we live in. And there are certain religions that call themselves Christian and they are all about works. They're all about keeping dietary laws They're all about rules and rituals and regulations and things that you have to go through to continually be forgiven over and over and over again. And then there are more mainline denominations of Christianity that that fall into this. Every time you turn around, you've lost your salvation. You know, you sneezed, you've lost your salvation. And I mean, I had a guy tell me, I've told you this before, it's like, you know, he told me, you know, if you were to if you were to get in a wreck and cuss as a result, you know, in panic, you better ask forgiveness right away. Because if you were to die, then you would go to hell. Now, that's just as false as it could possibly be. Well, that is a works based righteousness. You've got to keep yourself in God's good grace. You know, God saved you, but now it's depending on you to live perfectly and to ask forgiveness fast enough or as many times as it takes to stay in that place. And it may be subtle, but that kind of stuff will creep into our lives individually. And our relationship with God becomes a works-based relationship. It's not founded on the sufficiency of Christ. It's not founded on what Christ has accomplished for us. It's founded on our ability to keep our own rules. And, and it may be different for all of us, but we all have this. We all have in our mind what is, what is our list of rules. What is our list of things that we really wish that we could do? And we cannot attain to that list, you know? And I've, I've talked about this before, too. One time I, for like a week, I actually thought that I was keeping my list. I'm sure I wasn't. But somehow I actually thought I checked all the boxes. And you know what? I was miserable. And I did not feel any closer to God. I didn't feel like I was in any way experiencing some kind of uh, you know, intimacy with the Lord outside of the norm because it's not about keeping the rules. It's not about rituals and regulations. It's not about that, you know, and this was the big issue for the Galatian church. And Paul addresses that, you know, it's saved by Christ, but kept through my own ability to keep the rules. And so in Galatians chapter three, Paul says to them in verse one, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit that you are now being made perfect in the flesh? So he said, how was it that you were saved? How is it that you received the Spirit of God? It was through faith in Christ, faith in what He accomplished for us. And now you think that you are going to perfect yourself by keeping rules. Now you think somehow you're going to advance in this whole thing by being better, by doing better. And that, my friends, that's legalism, you know? Uh, Sometimes we'll throw that term out a little too lightly. Someone really has a, a strong devotion to Christ and, and they want to walk closely with Him and there are certain things, behaviors, actions that, that grieve their conscience, and it should because it is sin. And they take seriously fighting those sins and not living in those sins. Other Christians may look at them and say, you're being legalistic. I don't think so. I don't think so. Holiness, wanting to, to do God's will, wanting to walk. and and purity that is the goal of the Christian life is to be close to Christ and to run away from sin not to toy with it not to play with it not to swim in it but to run to Christ and to try to live upright holy lives but not so that we can have Christ but because we have Christ we desire to live holy lives because Christ has saved us because Christ is more than enough Because I am found in Him, and I am a child of God, I pursue holiness. I desire to walk uprightly before God. That's the right balance, you understand. That is the right balance, but some people get it twisted. They think that I have to keep the rules, I have to abstain from sin and things like that so that I can have God's love, so that I can have God's favor, so that I can have God's provision, as it were. And that's backwards, and so Paul addresses that as well in the book. And then lastly, asceticism, asceticism, Uh, Colossians chapter two, verse 20 says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using. According to the commandments and doctrines of men, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and a self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So this is self-denial. This is Christ plus self-denial and self-flagellation. I like that word, flagellation. I don't know if you've ever even heard that word, but uh, it's, it's really to beat yourself, to beat up on yourself. And there are people who do this literally. So what they're saying is, is that Christ's suffering was not enough. Christ's suffering was not enough, so let me suffer too. Christ's payment for sin was not sufficient, so let me pay a little more. And we can just go through this life beating ourselves endlessly, not realizing that our sin was paid for already on the cross. That the punishment that we deserved has already been placed on Christ at the cross. And so there is no more punishment for us. There is no more price to pay. It has been paid in full at the cross one time forever in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel That is the good news. That is why we are free in Christ, because we have failed and we will fail again. But praise God, all of that, all of it, past, present and future has already been accounted for, has been placed upon the cross and Christ died there for us in our stead and our sins, past, present and future are washed away. So we don't have to walk through this life paying for sin that's already been paid for. But there are people who who can't get that. They can't handle that. They can't handle grace. They can't handle the free gift. I mean, and I understand that. We're we're in a works-based world. You you know, you got to work if you want to eat. You have to work. But it's this performance thing. It's this I've got to do more. I've got to, I've got to, you know, beat myself for my own failures. You know, there are people, there's a guy in the Philippines, I don't know if he still does this, but he's been doing it for years, and it's this big thing. He'll, he'll build a cross each year on a certain day, carry it through the, the town, and then he'll be nailed to that cross. Um, and it's this big procession, and everybody watches this, and it's a horrific thing. It just is. It, I mean, I saw that, and that really disturbed me. That grieved me to think that uh, he felt like, and he talks about how when he does that, he's so close to God in that moment, he says, you know, and that throughout the year he's so grieved and he's so uh, vexed and burdened by his sin and he can't hear the voice of God anymore, but when he does that, he can. Brothers and sisters, that is not That is not the gospel. That is not what Christ has accomplished for us. That is not the heart of God. That is not the will of God. That is pure deception. And quite frankly, he's still in his sin. He's still in his sin. If that is, if that's what he thinks is the gospel, he's not right with God. Whatever he's hearing, whatever he's feeling, it's false. And that is the tragedy. Then there are, you know, there are people who will literally beat themselves. They'll whip their backs bare, flagellantes. That's another weird word. Flagellation, flagellantes that'll just mutilate themselves, beat themselves, uh, so that they can take their punishment and hopefully be right with God now because they punish themselves for God. That is not right, folks. You know, but we can be guilty of the same thing. We may not literally beat ourselves. But we we do do that. We torment ourselves. We we live with regret. We're totally coming down on ourselves for our weakness, for our mistakes, for our failures. Instead of recognizing that Christ has already suffered, Christ has already paid for that. And God says, I will remember your sins no more. You know, Martin Luther, the Protestant uh, reformer, As a monk, you know, they would do some really crazy stuff, too, right along these very lines, asceticism and um, sleeping on a concrete floor. I mean, just on and on the kinds of things that that these monks will do. I've heard of stories of wearing a belt that has pins in it, little, you know, needles that's constantly stabbing, stabbing you all day and uh, just doing everything in your power to make yourself as miserable as as can be. And he, had, um, he did irreparable damage, Martin Luther, in his older years. He was really messed up physically because of those types of punishments that he put on himself when he was younger. And so it's a real thing. And we may do it physically or we may do it mentally, but it's something that, that happens. And so Paul speaks to this too. Paul speaks to this too. And frankly, the, Jesus is the answer for all of this. The gospel is the answer for all of this. Jesus is more than enough. We don't need the wisdom from the world. We don't need more experiences and more secret knowledge. We need to keep more rules and regulations. And we don't need to beat ourselves over and over. Christ is more than enough. He satisfies all of that. He satisfies every bit of it. And in Him, we have more than enough. We are complete in Him. Christ is supreme. Christ is sufficient. And so that's how Paul addresses this, and we'll kind of close with this. Paul addresses these heresies. His answer to these heresies kind of goes like this. Number one, Christ is our King. Christ is our King. Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Christ is our King, and we are in His kingdom. We've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. He is now our King. Colossians 2.15, Having disarmed principalities and powers, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So Christ conquered His enemies, the demonic forces, and He has triumphed over them in it. You know, the enemy is an accuser. That's what the enemy seeks to do. And Christ triumphed over the accuser, and he is now our king, and he is victorious, and he reigns. Amen? He is our king. Christ is our redeemer. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, it says, And you being dead in your trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So Christ is our Redeemer. He is our King, and he is our Redeemer. He has bought us back. He has purchased us at the cross. The handwriting of requirements that was against us, that was, as it were, attached to the cross, Representing everything that we have done or ever will do was paid in full there at the cross, having purchased us from our sin. He is our redeemer. Three. Christ is God. Colossians one sixteen. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. If you've seen Christ, you've seen God. Colossians one nineteen. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness. Should dwell all of God's divine attributes, is they are in Christ. For in Him all the fullness of Godhead, uh, fullness of the Godhead bodily, Colossians 2:9. For Christ is the Creator. Christ is the Creator. Colossians 1:16. All things were created through Him. Christ is the agent of creation. That is power, folks. Christ is our sustainer. Colossians 1.17, He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. That means He holds all things together. So Christ has created us. Christ sustains us. He holds all things together. In Him all things consist. Christ is our purpose. Colossians 1.16, all things were created through Him and for Him. All things are for Him. We're created for Him. Christ is our purpose. Seven, Christ is the head. Christ is the head of the church, Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Christ reigns supreme in the church. The church is his. He is the head and we are the body. Christ is over all spiritual authority. Colossians 1.16. For by him all things are created that are in heaven and that are on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Christ created it all. He is over it all. It is all subject to him. Spiritual warfare, Christ is reigning triumphant. He is the king. They are no match for him. Christ is our resurrection, Colossians 118, and he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence. Christ rose from the grave, and we shall rise too, just like him. That is our confidence, that Christ was the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn among many brethren. He died, he rose again, and we believe that we too will die and we will rise with him into life everlasting in the glory of God, because Christ is our resurrection. 10, Christ is our peace. Colossians 1.20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Christ is our peace. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So Christ has made peace between us and God. We were enemies of God. We were dead in our trespass and sin. We were rebels against a holy God. And Christ has made peace between us. He has reconciled us to the Father. And now the peace of Christ rules in our hearts. Amen? 11, Christ is our power. Christ is our power. Colossians 1:29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Christ is our power. If there's anything good in us to do good or to live holy, it's because it's Christ's power working in us. Christ is our power and its power to put off the old man and its power to put on the new man. Colossians 3, 8, but now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. So he gives us the power to put these things off. He gives us the power to stop these things, but then he gives us the power to put on other things. Verse 10, and have uh, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who is created in him so christ is our power 12 christ is our lord and master colossians three twenty three. and whatever you do do it heartily as to the lord and not to men knowing that from the lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the lord christ he is our lord he is our master we serve Him with a whole heart. Everything that we do, we do for Him, for His glory. And Christ is our Lord and our Master. He is our King. He is our Savior. 13, Christ, this is our last one, Christ is our satisfaction. Christ is our satisfaction. Colossians 9 says, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him. We're complete in Him, brothers and sisters. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is God, God in the flesh. He is in us. We have been united with Christ. And in Him we are made complete. In Him we are full. Amen? Our satisfaction is in Christ. I want to just close with this quote. John Piper said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Christ is our satisfaction. Christ is more than enough. Christ has all that we need. And in Him, we are satisfied. And God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. So let us run to Christ. We must have Him. We must pursue Him more than any other other thing in this life, any other lesser thing. Christ is more beautiful than anything. He is more glorious than anything. He is above it all. He is before it all. In Him, all things hold together. Let's go to Him, amen? And that's my prayer, that as we work our way through the book of Colossians, God's going to do that work in our hearts, individually and in us as a church, that we will be a church of Christ-centered brothers and sisters, that Christ will be supreme in our lives, more important than anything else, and that we will recognize that Christ is more than enough. Let's pray. Jesus, we love You you truly are more than enough. It could not be more clear in the Scriptures from cover to cover, and not least of which in the book of Colossians. Forgive us, Jesus, when we don't live like this. Forgive us, Lord, when we look to all kinds of other things, lesser things in this life. Would you, God, please work in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, that you would become the treasure that You would be the greatest thing. And that we would really live a life that displays this. That every day, God, we would pursue You. It has to be a work of God. This is not something that we can just conjure up. But Lord, we do have a part to play in this. We must make the effort, God. We must make the effort to draw close to You. So Father, I pray as we do, Lord, that You would draw close to us and that by Your Spirit, You would, you would do a new work, a fresh work in us. And that, Lord, we would be fanatics for Jesus. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.